Thomas Manton on the wise and the foolish virgins. Matthew 25, 5 and 6. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom comes, go ye out to meet him. There is one clause in the former verse that remains undiscussed. The bridegroom tarried, which I'll speak to in this verse, where observed the time at midnight. Secondly, the means of awakening the sleepy virgins. There was a cry made. Number three, the matter of the cry, the unexpected coming of the bridegroom. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Number four, an excitement to their duty. Go you out to meet him. Still, the allusion is carried on to the matter from whence this parable is taken. There were virgins with the bridegroom and virgins with the bride, and that the bridegroom might be received with esteem and attended with all respect. Some of them were to go before and raise a cry in season to bring the virgins forth to meet him. So here Christ sends a cry before him to admonish and exhort the church to prepare and meet him. With respect to every particular soul, this cry is to be referred to, the voice and the importunity of them that are the children of the bride chamber or friends of the bridegroom, John 3, verse 29, who all tell us that the Lord is at hand, 1 Peter 4, verse 7, that he will shortly come, Hebrews 10, verse 37, and still the faithful ministers of the church cry aloud and call upon us to meet the bridegroom. With respect to the general meeting of the church in one great rendezvous, or congregation, it is meant of the trump of the archangel, spoken of in many places, which I shall quote by and by, calling us to come to judgment, doctrine. The bridegroom will certainly come, but at his own time, and then shall all be called upon to go forth to meet him. I shall handle this point with respect to the circumstances of this parable. First, I shall prove the certainty of his coming. Secondly, speak of the tarrying of the bridegroom, or the delay of his coming. Thirdly, his coming at midnight, or the uncertainty of the time when he will come. And number four, the cry that is raised before his coming. Then I shall give every circumstance mentioned its due weight. First, of the certainty of his coming. It is needful to premise that, because the efficacy of the whole discourse depends upon it. Reason says he may come, but faith says he will come. First, reason says he may come. It argues from the nature of God. There is a God, and this God is just. It is agreeable to his general justice that it should be well with them that do well, and ill with them that do evil. These principles are out of dispute, and suppose as the foundations of all religion. Now, supposing these principles, there must be a date of reckoning, for in the world the best go to the wall many times, and are exercised with poverty, disgrace, and scorn, when the wicked are full of plenty and live at ease. Luke 16, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. Sure it is that there is a God, and sure it is that he takes care of human affairs and will judge accordingly. 
What is the reason, then, of this disproportion? The wicked are reserved to future punishment, and the godly to future reward. Now, the distinction that is put between men at death does not suffice, for that is private, and does not vindicate the justice of God in the eyes of the world, and that is but upon a part. We read of the spirits of just men made perfect, and the spirits that are now in prison, but nothing of a reward for the body, or punishment for the body, the bodies of men being servants of righteousness, or instruments of sin, surely ought to partake of will or woe, of the curse or blessing that is due to the person. For the body is, as Tertullian says, the soul's sister and co-heir, and it is to share with it in its estate. But at death the body is senseless, and decays into dust, and until it be raised up again and joined to the soul, it can neither partake of will or woe. Therefore, there is a day when God will deal with the whole man. Otherwise, how shall the goodness of God, who is a liberal rewarder of virtue, appear, unless he render to the body a full recompense of the service that is done the soul, and yielding up all its natural appetites, pleasures, and interests, and satisfactions to the conduct of reason and grace, for the practice of that which is good, or the justice of God which is the avenger of sin, which would be too narrow and defective unless it punished a body with the soul. Usually the affections of the body debauch the soul, and the pleasures of the senses blind and misguide our reason. Certainly the love of sin being rooted in bodily pleasures, it is fit it should be punished with pain, and such pain as is proportionate to the dignity of him against whom the offense is committed. Now God and of an infinite and unlimited dignity and authority. How could the punishment of the body by death be proportionate to the offense committed against an infinite God? An outrage done to the supreme majesty of princes is punished more than an offense against an inferior person. Therefore, there must be a time when the body shall be raised to be capable of such a punishment. Besides, how could the soul be completely happy since it was made for a body if it should always remain a widow and never meet with its old mate again? Number two, it argues from the providence of God. There are many judgments that are pledges that God would at length judge the world for sin. as the drowning of the old world, the burning of Sodom, the destruction of Jerusalem, these are a document and proof what God will do to the rest of ungodly ones, for they are set forth as an example. Jude 7. The force of the argument lies in this, that God is the same, still in one mind, who can turn him. He hates the sin of one as well as the other. In all his dispensations, he is always consonant and like himself. Galatians 3.20. If he would not put up with the sins of the old world, he will not put off the iniquities of the new. If he punish Sodom, he will punish others, that sin in like manner. For he has not grown more indulgent to sin than he was before. Therefore, if it be not now, there will be a time when he will call them to an account in reckoning. When man first sinned, God did not immediately execute the sentence against him, but gave him time of repentance till he died. And since he gives every man time and space, he would not have all the world be born at once and die at once, but to live in several successions of ages, 
from father to son, in diverse generations, till he comes to the period which providence is fixed. Now as he reckons with every man particularly at death, so with all the world at the end of time, particular judgments show that God is not asleep, nor unmindful of human affairs, but the general judgment is deferred till then. Number three, from the feelings of conscience. After sin committed, men tremble, though there be none to call them to an account, as when the sin is secret and the person powerful. Conscience is under a dread of divine justice and the solemn process and triumph which one day it must have. Hence conscience is sensible, Romans 2 verse 8. Felix trembled when Paul reasoned of judgment to come, Acts 24, 25. There are hidden fears in the conscience which is soon revived and awakened by the thought of this day. Every guilty person is a prisoner to divine justice and being held in the visible chains of conscience stands in dread of a great and general assay. Number four, the convenience of such a day. To vindicate truth and honesty from the false judgment of the world. The best cause is often oppressed. There needs a review of things by a higher court. That that which is good may be restored to its public honor. And evil may receive its proper shame. Christ will convince the world of his love to the saints. When he comes to be admired in them. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 10. And when their faith is found to praise and glory. 1 Peter 1 verse 7. Thus shall it be done to the men whom Christ will honor. Proclaim their pardon, adorn them with grace, introduce them into their everlasting habitations. And this is in the eyes of the scorning wicked. As that nobleman, thine eyes shall see it, but not taste of it. Then for their everlasting confusion, their crime shall be repeated in the ears of all the world, and their false appearances shall be refuted. That the counsels and courses of God's manifold wisdom and justice may be solemnly applauded, we now view providence by pieces, but then the whole context and coherence of it shall be set together, and of whole history of all the world produced before the saints. Thirdly, such a coming is necessary that God may fit us with all kind of arguments against sin, and so a restraint will be put upon the heart against it. Many times sin and wickedness are committed in secret ecclesiastes 12:14 god will bring every work into the judgment with every secret thought whether it be good or evil and 1 corinthians 4:5 christ will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart many make no conscience of secret sins and if they make conscience of acts yet not of thoughts yet according to christ's theology malice is heart murder Lustful inclinations, heart adultery. Mind imaginations are heart idolatry. There may be a great deal of evil in a discontented thought against providence. Psalm 73 verse 22. He that sins secretly is conscience to himself that he does evil and therefore seeks a veil and covering. Men are unjust in secret, unclean in secret, envious in secret. Declaim against God's children in secret. Neglect duty in secret. Sensual in secret. Afraid that men should know it, yet not afraid of the great God. 
Man cannot damn us. Man cannot feel our consciences with everlasting burnings. Now that we may be ashamed to commit those sins before God, the day of judgment is appointed to set these sins in order before us. Psalm 50 verse 22, I will reprove thee and set thy sins in order before thee. Secondly, if it be doubtful to reason, it is sure to faith. Faith shows he will come. The light of faith is more certain and more distinct, more certain because it builds upon a divine testimony, which is more infallible than the guesses of reason, and yields us a more compendious way to confute atheism than our arguments, by which we are often entangled. It is so, for God has said it, and it is more distinct. Nature could never find out the circumstances of that day. It only apprehends the coming of a judge, but by whom this judgment shall be managed, and what quality he shall come, is a bridegroom and lord and husband of the church. It knows nothing, in what manner he shall proceed, and with what company and attendance. All this we have from special revelation. Faith argues first, from Christ's merit and purchase, would he buy us at so dear a rate, and cast us off so lightly, as to come no more at us? Surely he that came to redeem us will come to save us. If he came to suffer, he will come to triumph. Faith, seeing Christ upon the cross, determines, I shall see him in the clouds. Would he be at all this cost and preparation for nothing, and purchase what he never meant to possess? It cannot be. If he came from heaven upon the one errand, will he not come upon the other? Surely Christ will not lose all the pains he has taken to purchase to himself a people. Secondly, faith argues from Christ's affection to us, which is very great. Christ is not gone in anger, but about business, to set all things at rights for the great espousals. He that woos a virgin, if he went away from her in anger, she might well suspect he never would see her again. As bridegrooms used to fetch their bride, so will Christ. She never come at him otherwise. His love will not let him rest satisfied till we and he meet again, to enjoy one another's company. Certainly he who delighted among the sons of men before the world was, Proverbs 8.31, who delighted to converse with his people in human shape before his incarnation who took pleasure to spend his time busily amongst them and to dwell with them in the days of his flesh. John 9, verse 45. In short, he that had a mind of returning before he went away, certainly he will once more leave heaven for their sakes. When he has done his work there, he will return and bring his people along with him to glory and the full fruition of the promises. He will stay no longer than our affairs require. John fourteen three. The affections of his saints to him, which Christ will satisfy. There are many that never saw him, and yet believed in him, and loved him heartily. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. In whom believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And John 20, verse 29. Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen me, and yet have believed. Their faith is not misplaced. They shall find him such a one as he was to be believed, loved, and obeyed. Now to gratify their desires, Christ will appear and show himself. These eyes shall I see my Redeemer. The children of God cannot look to heaven, but they remember they have a Savior to come from thence. Philippians 3 verse 20. 
For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaks in his own name, and in the name of all those like himself. In Revelation 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Holy Ghost breathes the desire, and the Church answers the motion. Nature doesn't say, Come, but stay still. If it might go by voices, whether Christ should come or not, would carnal men give their votes this way? The voice of corrupt nature is, Depart. Job 22.14 Carnal men are of the mind of the devil. Art thou come to torment us before our time? Matthew 8 But the Spirit and the Bride raises these desires. Now would Christ disappoint these desires which he has raised in the hearts of his children and set them longing, looking, and groaning for that which shall never be? It cannot be imagined. Fourthly, from the constitution of the church, he has dispensed gifts and graces there and left ordinances there, and he will come and require an account of those things during his absence. How we have improved our talents. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. How things have been managed in his house, First Timothy six fourteen. Keep my commandments without rebuke till the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is now removed from us retired within the curtains of the heavens, but he will come again, 1 Corinthians 16:22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha, that is, cursed, till the Lord come. Secondly, I shall now speak of the tarrying of the bridegroom. While the bridegroom tarried, what? Is Christ more backward than the church that goes forth to meet him? They are ready with their lamps, but he delays his coming. Answer number one. Some understand it of our opinion, not the reality of the thing. Though Christ come always with the soonest, yet to us he seems to tarry. Why? Because earnest desires crave a present satisfaction, and hope deferred makes the heart sick. Proverbs 13.12 Proverbs 10.26 is vinegar to the teeth, and smoke to the eyes, so is the slugger to them that send him. Expectation is in itself tedious, especially when accompanied with difficulties. Certainly, being accompanied with present troubles, it is more tedious. The flesh grows impatient after its own ease, and in this sense the bridegroom is not slack. But we are hasty. I do observe it the rather, because the same happens when we expect Christ to help us in our particular distresses. Because of the impatience of the flesh, and of the levity of our minds, and the weariness of expectation, the time seems long. There is our time, and Christ's time. Our time is always with us, but his time is not come, Jeremiah fourteen nineteen. We looked for peace, and there is no good. For the time of healing, and behold, trouble. In this sense, Christ only seems to delay his coming. We are eager upon enjoyment. We would have it now. Answer number two, the reality. He tarries and suspends his coming. There is a great efflux of time between his ascension and second coming. And that for wise reasons. First, that all this while there may be space for the world to repent. 
despises thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance. Whatever God's intentions be, his dealings, his forbearance and long-suffering, should lead us to repentance. God uses great patience to the wicked. Romans 9.22 Endures with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction. So Revelation 2, verse 21, I gave her space to repent, and she repented not. God gives leaves to repent. Visible means to repent, and space to repent, even there where he gives not effectual grace. Wicked men abuse his patience, take encouragement from thence to run into all extravagancy, but God's aim is to leave them without excuse. Number two, that all the elect may be gathered, Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God would have the world filled with mankind and endure for many generations, till it come to that period, which his providence has appointed. And what is that period? Till all that belong to the election of his grace be brought into him. For all things are for the elect's sake. Now when his number is full, he will come. These were not to be born all at once, and it requires time and pains to work upon each elect soul after they are come into the world. Therefore he is not slack, as men are slack. Men's slowness in performing their promises comes from their unwillingness or backwardness to do the thing, or from impotence and weakness or lack of foresight of all possible difficulties, or else from their forgetfulness. None of these are in God. Not forgetfulness, for he is mindful of his people. He will not stay longer than the appointed time. Not backwardness, for he waits, as well as you wait, for the fittest time. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Not from weariness, for he can do whatever he will. Number three. To exercise our patience to the full. Colossians 1, 24. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you that fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in the flesh for his body's sake, which is his church. Not as if Christ's personal sufferings for the redemption of sinners were imperfect, and so to be supplied by the suffering of others, though it is men of Christ mystical. So the sufferings are not perfect or filled up till every member of his body endure their allotted portion and share. This cup goes by course and round. Christ first, we are next. It goes from hand to hand. While the world continues, James 1 verse 4, let patient have its perfect work. That cannot be but under great and long troubles. And as it is for the exercise of our patience, so to awaken our desires. Second Peter three, twelve. Fourthly, I come to speak of the cry made. The cry is a means in which God rouses them up out of this slumber. Christ sends his cry to awaken souls before his coming. This cry is twofold. Number one, the more remote cry, which is for the rousing of particular persons in all ages, and that is the voice of the ministry of the word. Thus Christ, at his first coming, had a crier went before him to alarm the world and prepare them for his reception, and that was John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness 
So still before his second coming, he has some to raise a cry. The cry of the word is often spoken of in Scripture, Proverbs one twenty four. I cry to them, and they would not hear. So Isaiah 58.1 Cry aloud, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. And it is the great means to awaken us out of our security. All God's faithful servants in all ages have been crying. The Lord is at hand. Our work is to rouse up the hearts of men that they may be prepared more and more for the joyful receiving of Christ at his coming. We should not keep silence, nor deal sleepily. It is a convincing, powerful word that is a cry, and it is your duty to be awakened by the cry. If this word be not entertained, he has his rod. Psalm 2, 5. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Micah 6, verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries unto the city, and a man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod in him that is appointed it. We shall hear the voice of the rough teacher. The word cries, and if the word be not heard, the rod cries. We need all kinds of excitations to rouse us out of our careless walking and heartless praying and negligent sleepy thoughts that so we may think more seriously of the coming of the bridegroom. Number two, there is more immediate and a general cry for rousing and raising up all at once, and that is the trump of the archangel, spoken of in many places, John five twenty eight and 29. The dead in their grave shall hear his voice and come forth, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of damnation. The means employed in the resurrection is the voice of Christ Jesus, who shall descend with a shout for Thessalonians four sixteen. And with the sound of a trumpet sounded by angels, Matthew twenty four thirty one. He shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. So first Corinthians fifteen fifty two The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. Christ that had a forerunner at his first coming, has also at his second. This trumpet sounds to summon all to appear before Christ's tribunal to be judged. There was an audible trumpet at the giving of the law, Exodus 19.20. This sound shall be heard all the world over. Application number one. Let us improve this to the particular use of Christ's coming, either in a way of mercy to his people or in a way of judgment. First, in a way of mercy. The Lord tarries sometimes when men think he should come sooner. John 11.6, Jesus loved Lazarus, and he abode still two days in the same place that he was when he heard that he was sick. Let there be no misconstruction. It is not lack of love, nor lack of power. He could raise him up when he was ready to stink. He may delay our help till a fit time come, in which his glory may shine forth, and the mercy be more conspicuous. To come late is many times the best time. God keeps back his best blessings for a while and detains them long in his own hands before they come to us. Therefore, wait his leisure. Expectation is tedious and reckons every minute. Strong desires are importunate, and usually we go by an ill count, not by eternity, but time. The timing of all things is in God's hand, not left to our foolish fancies, but his wise ordering. The dial sometimes goes before the sun, so doth our time before God's time. 
we would make short work for faith and patience, and so our graces would not be found to praise and honor. In all such cases, let us remember, the Lord has chosen the fittest time, Ecclesiastes 3.11. It will not come one jot too soon or too late, but the fittest time for him to give and us to receive. B. God is very precise in giving his time, Exodus 12.41 and 42. And it came to pass at the end of the four hundred and thirty years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed to the Lord, for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. Thirdly, God stays for us rather than we for him. This will come before we are ready. The great let of mercy was that people's hearts were not prepared. Fourthly, every day will bring some advantage. There is somewhat more of ourselves and somewhat more of God to be discovered, some intervening experience that is worth the having before full and final deliverance comes. But secondly, in a way of judgment, sometimes Christ raises a cry and gives notice of great changes. It concerns us to take notice of this voice, that we may not be taken unprovided. Amos 4.12 Thus will I do to you, prepare to meet your God, Israel. When God threatens, we had need make serious preparation how we shall prevent or bear the stroke of an angry God. It is good counsel, Luke fourteen thirty one and 32. When a king goes to war against another king, he sits down and considers whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassador and desires terms of peace. Fifthly, there needs in such cases serious preparation. The work will be the more difficult when the storm is broken out upon you. Application number two, we may improve this as to his coming to us by death or rather our coming to him. The end of time and all things in it are near to every particular person. Christ and we are to meet shortly. It should be our care to meet him by true and serious repentance, that we may meet him with joy. We are frail creatures, and within a very little while death will summon us to appear before the Lord. And when you die, you are speedily to come to your trial. Now are all things ready. Is Christ your bridegroom? Are your lamps burning, your graces kept in exercise, and shining forth to the Lord's glory? Have ye oil in your vessels, such a deep and powerful work as will keep up this affection? Are these things in you and abound in you? Application 3. We should improve it as to Christ's general coming, if be so that the bridegroom will certainly come, but at his own time. Then be not of the number of those scoffers and mockers that either deny or doubt of his coming. No most part of men expect no such matter. The profane scoff at it, and would fain shake off this bridle and restrain upon their lust. Second Peter 3. three. For take heed of the whispers of atheism, which would tempt us to turn to the world and present things, and give over our hopes. Most men's faith about the eternal recompense is but pretended, at best but too cold and speculative. An opinion rather than a sound belief as appears by the little fruit and effect it has upon them. 
For if we have such a belief of them as we have of other things, we should be other manner of persons in all holy conversation and godliness. Take heed of apprehending it is a thing afar off. Look upon it as sure and near to hasten your preparation. Take heed of a cold and ineffectual thinking of it. There is certain time appointed, and whether that appointed time has come, he will certainly appear. Therefore look for it, and long for it. Long for it for your own sake. It is the day of the manifestation of the sons of God. Romans 8.19 Then shall you receive your reward to the full. 1 Peter 1.13 Hope to the end. For the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then is the fullest manifestation of the love of God. Now we are pressed with the remainders of corruption within, and temptations and persecutions without. Wait for his coming. The people tarried without for the high priest, till he came forth to bless them. So must we look for his return, when he will come to bless us. Thomas Manton from the Sermons on the Foolish and Wise Virgins.